Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Community is a Verb. My name is Connor Kaysen, your co-host here at CIAV. And next to me, via the powers of the internet, is my inventive co-host, Mr. Well-Traveled. How you doing? Hey, Connor. I like inventive. That's, that's great. <laughs> Thank you for that one. Uh, well, you're I mean, definitely like... How are you going to... Keep this up. How are you? I mean, I mean, the dictionary is full of words, so I'm just curious how you get, when you get to a point where you run out of words. I, I think my uh, Google synonymous search is like knowing, like, oh, every other Saturday, Connor looks up these synonyms, uh, and so uh, there's there's so many words out there. Well, uh, I I think I can go a pretty long time. It's more just keeping track of the list. Uh, I now now have like a list. Uh, I went through back all the podcasts and made the list. Uh, and so now it's like, all right, make sure not to create any repeats. I'll, I'll add, I'll add that to the base camp. So you can see, uh, I'll just move the doc to the base camp. So you can see all the words that we've used. Maybe that's like, that would be a fun social graphic. I'll have to make sometime. And so let, let, usually we start the show with some type of check-in. What's, what's new with you, Mr. Will Travel? How you been doing since the last time we recorded? Um, all is well. I've been pretty busy. Uh, that's, you know, as usual, there's always something to work on, some project, some some activity. So yeah, just kind of uh, staying staying busy and in in not enjoying as much outdoors time as I probably should. Like I, I said, I think last time or the show before, go outside. I've been inside, so I need to get outside. I've, it, it's been just wild for me to see how quickly the world is kind of catching up, especially as I've been vaccinated, like the amount of dinner requests or businesses reaching out like, hey, can you come feature my business? Are you willing to dine in? Will you show that off for us to kind of get people more comfortable to come visit uh, people wanting to have coffee meetings and just like it's very quickly starting to ramp up again with the like, hey, like, let's be in person. And I. I was really getting used to the lifestyle of just not having so many social obligations and just being able to like hang out and, and not feel so conflicted. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm so grateful to get to go feature all these restaurants and go try all these places. Uh, but it was nice to have that like break for the past year. And my calendar is quickly starting to rack up again. And I've just got to be better now that I'm aware of it. Of like, I just need to balance my calendar and learn to say no and not accept uh, everything that people ask me to do. Hmm. Okay. I was going to, I actually thought maybe you would be more into the idea of getting back in person because you're such a social person and you're, that's so much a part of your brand. So I, I was kind of surprised. I, I was going to ask, well, how do you feel about that? But I, I guess, I guess I understand. Yeah. I, I think this year has like uh, shown me a side of my introverted self that I've, I've learned to just appreciate a little bit more and appreciate kind of my solitude and some of my private time. And so now it's just, just a bit of a balance. I got to understand when I need time with people and when I need time to myself and, and balance that, but I'm sure it's still going to be just as busy and, and plenty of daily activities, but let's jump into this week's topic, which, uh, we have deemed kind of social leaders and their money. And where that started was an article that got put out by the Seattle times. This was maybe two weeks ago. And it's written by the Seattle times staff reporter, Daniel Beekman wanted to give him credit there. And the title of this headline was From $0 to $15 million, What Seattle's Mayoral Candidates Say About Their Own Finances. And it broke down the kind of primary people that are 
in the running right now for Seattle mayor and, and what their net worth is. And so our guy, Andrew Grant Houston, also known as ACE, he was at the bottom. He was also the first one listed at $0 net worth. And at the top was Bruce Harrell, who says his net worth is $15 million. Uh, also included in this is um, city council member Lorena Gonzalez at $266,000, Colleen Echohat. Echo Hawk at 400,000 and is it Jessen Farrell at 1.25 million dollars. And you and I were having this conversation and you pointed out that never really seen and and maybe this is just us being more in tune to the the mayor races and and, and political contributions and kind of all that more, but this far ahead of the election to be like here are our candidates and here are how much they are worth just to see that um, Mr. Walt Travis, share with us a little bit about what you thought about this article uh, and, and learning about these candidates. Yeah, um, my reaction initially was kind of one of indifference because I, I first became aware of the article when um, Ace, uh, the candidate, uh, is his his name we know him as ace but his as a candidate he's andrew grant houston when he posted on his instagram page uh, about the article and so i was sort of indifferent about it because i thought well this is just another sort of article about this this race but then when you sent it to me and i started to read it i realized very quickly that i don't think that i've ever known the ins and outs of uh, mayoral candidates finances in this way and I think my initial reaction was that there are a lot of ways to think about who they are and their lived experience and how that factors into the decisions that they could potentially make if elected. Yeah, certainly. And I'm curious, too, how this is going to change people's opinion, because there's been a big narrative about politicians in general about why do we have uh, how many politicians go into politics and aren't worth a lot? And by the time they're in it, now they're millionaires all of a sudden, right? And why do we have all of these millionaires deciding the fate of a majority of people who are not nearly as wealthy, uh, right? And representing a public that doesn't un- even understand uh, what it's like to have that kind of wealth. And is that the person you actually want representing yourself? And so this was a really interesting article, especially starting with Ace at the top with zero net worth. Uh, they the putting him at the top is very interesting, um, especially because we know I feel like he hasn't gotten as much publicity as some of the other big candidates. Uh, this was a very interesting thing to say. And and I wonder if it's going to work actually in his favor that people are going to say like, you know what, that's the kind of person that we want to lead this city, right? We want someone who understands what it was like, how important that stimulus, that $1,500 stimulus, $600 stimulus check that we got this year, how much that was actually worth. Because based off this list, he was the only one who got one. Um, someone who understands what it's like to be on unemployment and to struggle and to get laid off from their jobs and uh, to feel the past year like so many of us have. I, I think that's going to empathize with a lot of people. I'm not sure as of right now, is that going to turn into votes? But as far as right now, it's getting the conversation and, and putting them up there with some of these people who a few of them have really well-established brands, personas within the city. And so I, I, 
I think it's going to work out really well for Ace in in context of this article um, because it it makes them look different and and something that we should all look into. Someone that represents more of the the common worker of Seattle. Yeah, I I had that reaction or a similar reaction, I should say, as well with with Ace's blurb there in the art in the article. I definitely felt like he had the most relatable situation, right? Because he talked about having student loan debt, talked about being on unemployment um, assistance. Uh, He is self-employed, but doesn't make a lot of money. And I think that there are many people who can see themselves or some parts of their own financial lives within his story. He's college educated, but he doesn't make all the money in the world. He's, you know, having to deal with uh, the pandemic in a very relatable way for a lot of voters. He's also a renter. So those other candidates, it was very clear they're all homeowners. And that's part of the, the other side of this story that really Seattle's the Seattle story is very much one of haves and have have nots. And the majority of the candidates are haves. They have a lot and they have varying degrees of a lot, but they have more than zero. And I think that's that's the interesting thing, because if you look at who voters are oftentimes in these elections, they are often of a, a group of haves. And those haves tend to be homeowners and they tend to be very vocal about what they want and organized about getting what they want. So as I scroll down the list, I I noticed certain things that jumped out at me about the other candidates, but I, I was struggling to figure out how much it matters, right, to to someone that one candidate's worth zero versus another worth 15 million. How how much does that factor into your decision-making, um, who you're going to vote for? Um, and if it does factor in, does it factor in based on who you are and what your situation is, right? So do you vote for the person who has zero net worth because you identify with that person's story or do you vote for the person who has 15 million net worth because you also you can identify with that story? You know, as we've talked about on this show before, Seattle is a corporate city. So there are a lot of people who can identify with the 15 million dollar person or the 15 million dollar net worth person. And I think that's that's important to consider uh, as well. I don't think that Seattle is as liberal as people would like to believe. It is. I think the citizens are far more conservative than the city council, I would say, because even the mayor, mayors tend to be in Seattle, from what I've seen, to be fairly conservative. They might be Democrats, but they're not um, liberal Democrats. Yeah, or or extremely progressive, should we say. It's it's definitely, and, and I think you're right, especially a, a lot of people here yeah, they have corporate jobs, right? They work, whether that's at the big tech companies or in the healthcare system, right? There's a lot of those 
salary corporate employees, and that drives a lot of these elections and decision makers. Uh, it also creates a big debate between the renters and the homeowners, and the balance uh, of those scales are constantly changing um, and probably even going more into homeowners after this past year because a lot of people are moving out from their rentals or, or investing in some type of way. And yeah, overall, I, I, I'm really curious to see how this plays out when we get into the debates, which I don't even know when there is going to be debates, but in the presidential primaries and uh, not so much in the two presidential candidate debates, but there was a lot of talk about like, those people are millionaires, right? Is that, are those the people that you want representing you? And so I'm very curious how that's going to play when we get to the debates and kind of, we get to the finger pointing uh, time of the election and, and how that's going to play out. And, and, you know, we could just be speculating and this could be completely worthless information that no one really cares about, but it did stick out to you and I. Uh, and, and so to make a little transition, you mentioned about the haves and haves nots and, and specifically home ownership. And you and I also talked about another article uh, that was about Patrice Kohlers, who is uh, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. And she got called out for specifically for one house that she bought in Southern California in Topanga Canyon. And her house was worth $1.4 million, which uh, to her credit, $1.4 million in Los Angeles, like, isn't this like crazy amount of money, uh, especially in Topanga Canyon? Um, and yeah, so she was born in Van Nuys, which is 20 miles away. I was also born in Van Nuys. Uh, shout out to Van Nuys, California. Um, and so it, it, it was very interesting that this article came out about her, that she is a trained Marxist and uh, activist freedom fighter. And then she's buying this house inside what is deemed uh, a primarily white community. It's like 98% white people live in this neighborhood. And, and yeah, she got kind of blasted online for having that. But there's also a lot of information kind of behind the scenes about her money and, and how she works, her relationship with BLM and how she's paid for that. And so what did you think, Mr. Well-Travel, of uh, just really the concept that when you become a leader at, at this level and you become well-recognized that a lot of your decisions are, uh, I don't know if expose is the right word, but put out for public opinion on some of these decisions you made. I mean, I wouldn't say buying a house is all that bad of a thing, but because of what she represents and what she stands for and all this money that she raised over this past year was the right move. Like, how, how did you feel about this article? Yeah, what, so I first became aware of this uh, story on Instagram, and I immediately saw the reactions. Right, people were questioning whether she was involved in fraudulent activity, if she was taking donations. Part of the way the story came out was, uh, or part of the way the story was told, I think, was included the fact that BLM in the last year raised ninety million. So BLM raised ninety million, and. She also bought in the same amount of time, um, not just one house, but she bought a total of, I believe, four houses and a for a total of three point two million. So the with just that information, right? If that's all that you're you've been told, that's the headline that you've you've got. The natural question is, well, where did the money come from? How did how did she? pay for this. And, and so the articles were alleging perhaps 
that she had taken donation money and had purchased these homes. She didn't immediately address the accusations. And so they, they kind of spun up for a few days. And then finally, when she came out and addressed them, one of the things that she said was that, you know, activists should be able to earn a living and they should also be able to have wealth. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to build their wealth by taking a salary from the organization that they work for. So she's so she co-founds Black Lives Matter, but she says that she's never taken a salary from BLM. She's only worked in a volunteer capacity and she's currently the executive director. So that is something that's easy to verify uh, through tax statements, right? So that's not, so I, I believe if she's saying that, I, I believe that's probably true. I think once I understood that part, and then I also understood some of her sources of income, she's a college professor. She has a deal, I believe, with Netflix. She's got some, she's got a book deal and she's published at least one book, maybe, maybe multiple. And because of all of these uh, entrepreneurial activities, building off of her brand, which we know her because of BLM, but she she has a brand as a as a social activist that that has given her the opportunity to generate personal income outside of being the leader of the organization. And then that's allowed her to do things like purchase homes for herself, but also the other homes were for family members, is what she said. So my reaction to that was, well, that that's what most people would do. That is a normal thing. The problem, I think, was just the optics, right? Like, if you don't know any of those things, which no one knew any of those things about her, you only knew that she was the leader of this organization, you might think that perhaps there was something fraudulent going on there. And I think if she if she wasn't the head of BLM and she was just some person who was a professor, who was on, who had a Netflix deal, who had a podcast, who had books, who talked about these things, no one would care. Nobody would care about the fact that she spent 3.2 million on homes because we understand that that sort of business model. What people assume, I think, is that if you are the head of a nonprofit organization, you're supposed to be poor. And that's generally not true for very successful nonprofits. The leaders usually have a very good salary. In her case, she didn't take a salary, but I think the assumption was that she was paying herself a lot, so much so that she could buy multiple properties. Yeah, and, and that's the case so much with the internet now is we're just going to blast them with the headline and say, because she is the head of this organization and she is a self-identified Marxist, I guess, that how, how could she be buying this multi-million dollar, or this $1.4 million home. Uh, and, and I just think that was kind of weird because over the last year, we've had lots of conversations about uh, the concept of generational wealth and how important like home ownership is for um, every community, but specifically the black community in uh, creating generational wealth. And so now we have this person who is exemplifying that and buy homes also for a family. And then we're like, I don't want to say weird, but like media is tearing her down for doing that. It's just kind of like, uh, it, it's it's a frustrating situation, but obviously they're just going for headlines and conservative media is going to jump all over this kind of thing and, and, and blow it up quite a bit. I would also say that 
they are trying to delegitimize Black Lives Matter by doing something like this to say, look, all of you gave all of this money in the last year. Look what's happening with it. This the leader of the organization is living a lavish lifestyle on your donations. You you wanted to support this organization and look what's happening. I think that's the story that they or that's the conclusion they want people to draw. And I think some people have drawn that conclusion because the the headlines and the stories about, you know, her wealth, that circulated widely, but her response to that did not like you, it's you are hard pressed to find the first interview she did because she didn't go to a very uh, big. Um, so the person I think she did the interview with is kind of known on CNN and MSNBC and some of those channels, but um, his own personal show, I think it may be on his YouTube channel or his podcast. I can't, I'm not really sure which one I've never seen. It. I, I didn't know the guy even had a show, but um you know, that's where she went. So it that did not get as wide. That wasn't widely circulated. And then I think some news outlets picked up some comments from that and then they published that. But I don't think that was as widely circulated as the articles about what she about her wealth. And I think that's that's the other piece. I think she could have prevented this, though, from happening. I think she could have had a PR person help her. Because this is the kind of thing that someone with no background in PR can look at and say, wow, you're doing these things. Shouldn't you be concerned about the perception? And how do you, and you can get ahead of that. You don't have to actually wait until these things are circulating about you. And also her job as the executive director really is to protect BLM. And right, and that by allowing this to, be the story someone else is controlling the narrative and that is tainting the public perception of blm now of course some people see right through that like i i see i saw very clearly what was happening but even i've looked at the story and i said hmm, that's interesting i'd like to know more about what's going on here so i do think um like you she's probably not wrong for pursuing generational wealth. And she did talk about that as being her motivation for purchasing these homes. But to the general public, uh, I think you have to begin that conversation before with the, with the public before you have the scandalous article come out about you because there's really nothing scandalous about it. If you look at anyone else's situation, whether it's your situation, my situation, anyone else, I mean, people buy homes, that's what you do. And you should do that if that's the way that you want to um, create wealth in your family. But unfortunately for her, she didn't think about how that might be perceived. And she didn't have a conversation with the public about that ahead of time. I mean, I, I didn't even know who she was before. I'd seen her name, but I didn't know what she looked like. I didn't know anything about her. Now, I, the, when I Google her name, the first thing I see is, you know, the articles about the homes. And I see the pictures of the house that she lives in, which is very nice. But I think she could have gotten ahead of that. Yes. I mean, especially when you become a name that is 
become a household name, at least somewhat, uh, and your organization is certainly a household name around the world. Uh, you, you've got to be ahead of those things and like, really what what shows up when you google it when you get googled and and where the narrative is going and, and how you manage that i have no clue how to do that uh right if if, if i became that famous I, I who knows how difficult that challenge actually is but uh, let's take a step a little higher up kind of as we lead to the conclusion of the show and so the title of our show this week is social leaders and their money so how do you just feel overall, uh, like, like where, where are you feeling with, with that kind of headline? If you were just to read that, like where would, where do you stand in, in your opinion and the importance or the perception of a lot of these leaders in political, social leadership positions and, and having this kind of wealth? You know, I definitely think it's complicated. On the one hand, you can look at a social leader who has no money and think, this person is of the people. This person has a very similar experience to the people that they are trying to help. And then you can look at someone who's a leader who has a lot of money and say, well, they're out of touch. They have, they really don't know. And they're going to pursue policies or programs that really are not transformative. They're more incremental change or maintaining the status quo with the with the facade of change. You could also look at it the other way, right? That someone who is very deeply connected to a system um, financially, I guess, can understand very well how that system works to create wealth for other group, for, for their group or for people as individuals. And a person who has not been a part of that because they have been excluded may not know where, which levers to pull, right, to create the change within a system that denies wealth to folks. So I, I've, I, I feel like it is a complicated thing. I think it also, I think it also comes down to the individual because part of what we're talking about is a person's lived experience. So their lived experience with money, without money, their journey from going from zero to 15 million, it, it's all of that. And I think it does matter. But I think lived experience in general matters. And we often discount lived experience in positions of leadership. We often say, well, this person has experience in this particular area and therefore they will be a good leader now because they have this particular type of work experience so i think for me when i i don't know how much that 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 someone's financial situation plays into my decision making or, or my evaluation of their leadership capabilities but I would say, I would like to think that, you know, if, if I'm thinking about who would be a good leader, I think someone who has had a lived experience that matches a, a larger portion of the population, I think that would matter. Someone who can actually understand the effect and impact of policies on people's lives. and is seeking not just to 
have incremental change, but also to really make the changes that allow for people to have access, access to opportunity, access to wealth building, access to all of the things essentially that they're denied systemically. But that doesn't, you you don't necessarily get that from lived experience, like being able to understand systems and structures that actually comes with study education and some other types of experiences. So you can live through a system and not know at all how it works, which many people do. So I think I'd like to see more information about leaders' lived experiences and not the kind that are so generic, like, I grew up in this neighborhood and we had to walk this many miles and this is how we live. No. Also, how are you, what's going on in your your financial picture today? I think I think that does make a difference, but ultimately for me, probably that would not be the deciding factor. Yeah, I agree. To make it the deciding factor, I would say is uh, maybe a little too extreme. And and being in a capitalistic society, like wealth is going to come with your success and your popularity. They just kind of naturally happen. So if you're if you are in a leadership position and you have a lot of people who support you and follow you, and there's a tension coming your way, a lot of times that at least somewhat money and wealth is going to come your direction. Um, I mean, that goes for this story here that we're just talking about um, that she had a Netflix deal and a Spotify deal and a book deal, right? All those things come when you start a big organization that has a lot of success, garners a lot of attention, uh, becomes a household name. A lot of that stuff's going to come with with it. I, I think it's going to be really hard in America to see a, a Gandhi type figure who uh, you know lives on a minimum income and does doesn't own these fancy assets and uh i i think it's going to be hard to like see those leaders once you get in those positions it's hard not to make make that money and and especially once you get into those political positions we've seen with plenty of politicians how much money then comes their way uh because of really the face time that they get right they, they can make a lot of money on speaking engagements on book deals we're seeing so how many people are getting book deals just because they worked for Donald Trump in the past four years? Uh, a lot of people. And so it, it, it's an interesting balance to it, it's hard not to expect that leaders are going to have some type of wealth. Uh, but I think it, it does make sense. Like where where were they and when were they before they had that wealth is also part of the picture as well, uh, because yeah, I think I think they're, they're going to go hand in hand. All right. Well, that uh, gets here to the end of episode nine, season two of Community as a Verb. Mr. Well Travel, do you have any parting words for us this week? You know, I was thinking about this a week ago. And one thing we haven't talked about that has been going on in the last couple of weeks is, uh, you know, on in the news, we've had just situation after situation where uh, police have um you know, killed an unarmed black person. And I think to see that every single day, it's, 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 it's hard. Uh, And it's easy to, um, I think, ignore, I don't want to say ignore, that's probably not the right word, but it's, it's easy to be, um, become numb, I think, to just the, the constant um, onslaught of these stories. So I think what's important uh, is just to acknowledge that 
in the world that we're living in, there are a lot of uh, other challenges that we continue to deal with. And so although we may may talk about something like this, where we this the, the issue of social leaders and their wealth, um, it, there is, while that may seem like a light topic, there I think there is a relationship between how people are making their money and the choices that they they make. And so really not, I think what, I, what I'd like to say is, you know, as, as we continue to have these conversations as, as a community and as a society about what we want the world to look like, I think it's important that we, we really start to make those um, connections, those, those cause and effect, those systemic connections, because that's really what we need to address. And looking at a single incident or a single person's um, situation, sometimes we get we lose sight of the 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 the, the forest because we're so focused on a single tree. <laughs> Maybe that's a better way I want to put that. So so yeah. So as we continue to have these discussions, let's just remember um, that we are all working within a system and we are all trying to think about ways to improve this system. I love it. I love it. That is the end of this week's show. He is at Mr. Well-Traveled on Instagram. I am at Find Me in Seattle. Let's give a special shout out to Tyree. He's on the back end here of Community as a Verb. We appreciate all the work that he puts in to helping us produce this show. And uh, please let us know if you have any thoughts, opinions, comments, uh, or topic ideas that you want to talk to either of us about. We'd love to hear from you. And Mr. Well-Traveled, thank you very much for being my co-host here on the show. I love doing the show with you. And uh, we will all see you soon. 